a big part of the challenge that those in and outside of the military face is that we don't understand how our brains work. We're told what we should believe, and 99% of that is based on a stigma that isn't accurate. Welcome to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. The Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. Welcome to another educational episode of Stigma-Free Vet Zone. Today, we are going to stay in our hometown of West Bend, Wisconsin, and we're going to be speaking with Dietra Kay. Dietra Kay is an award-winning suicide prevention speaker and author, having served in the Idaho and Wisconsin National Guards as her first post-high school career. Though never having served active duty, her perspective on adjustment, acceptance, forgiveness, mental illness, suicide, hope, healing, personal growth, and living well resonate with active and post-service veterans, as well as civilians alike. So let's just get on the block and welcome Diacha. Welcome to our program, Diacha. Thank you, Mike. So you are a very valuable and educational resource for us uh, on the topic, of course, that is common with veterans and something that our podcast is designed to work on or toward uh, improving, and that is depression and suicide. So introduce us to Diatra from a little girl when you were first born, little dolls or animals, horseback riding. All the good things. All the good, All the good things. things. Well, I was actually born in California. You know, you have to start back at the very beginning. And I was there for about a year before my mother moved myself and the man that I thought was my father. Um, I learned much later that he wasn't. But uh, we moved north to Idaho, her home state, and that's where I grew up later moving to Wisconsin, I think I was about 20 years old. I had, yeah, I was pregnant with my first son. And so I moved to Wisconsin and it's been 27 years that I've been here in the Midwest. Um, But I had had some unique childhood challenges and uh, a lot of that stemmed from what went on within the four walls of the home I grew up in. And then had some really great people that were surrounding me and wonderful examples, including to, um, you know, to the credit of my parents, um, things that they brought that were good into my life. And then also those challenges, but then people that were outside of our home that were able to present to me a different version of what the world could be like than that of which I was seeing day to day. Um, A neighbor uh, was a huge influence on my life. Didn't, she didn't even know that until years later. Um, but I was good friends with her daughter when we were small. Um, one of my aunts and, uh, and especially my grandparents and a third grade teacher. So, um, you know, just as a young child learned how to observe the world around me and adapt. And I think that that has served me very well. Did you have brothers and sisters or other people living in the home with you or just you and your mom? Yeah, actually, I, I did, and I still do have. I have a brother, 
um, who is about three and a half years younger than I am, a little sister who refers to me as both her big sister, her friend, and her and her mom, because I, I spent a lot of time um, with her both when she was younger and then adopted her when I was 24 and she was 16. And, um, and then I have a stepbrother and a stepsister, and that that kind of makes up the the gist of my home life with uh, a mother and then the gentleman who actually raised me from the age of uh, I had just turned nine years old when he came into our lives. So it, was it a happy home? Did you have uh, pets and music and playhouse and all that sort of thing? Or? Oh, I love these questions, Mike. <laughs> Brings back such good memories. Um, you know. I would say that our home was, it was a kaleidoscope. You got a little bit of everything. And depending upon which direction you chose to look at it would have a lot to do with how we chose to remember it. Um, and when I say we, I include all members of my family because each one of us walked away with very specific positive experiences and very specific trauma-based experiences, but how we chose to look at those and how we chose to grow and and learn and heal from those has had a lot to do with where each of us is today. Oh, sounds very, very, it makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of uh, veterans feel the same way after coming home from war. You could have been in a battle with with certain friends. You come home and everybody saw something different. Everybody experienced it different and everybody uh, took those reactions and resolved them differently. So it, absolutely. Yeah. Now, as far as the pets, we had lots of pets. <laughs> Cats came and went frequently across the road. We had a mill, a grain mill, and there were lots of mice. And so we would just adopt cats oh, wow. here and there. We had one that was an indoor cat um, for many years. And then we had lots of different dogs that came and went and came and went. Um, but we had just a couple of them that were really that, that filled my heart with uh, goodness. And my grandparents had a couple of dogs while I was growing up as well. So I'm a huge, especially small dog fan. We have a Pomeranian that is the light of our lives here at home. And uh, yeah, so I've just surrounded myself with nature, with animals. I just think that there's a lot that can joy and happiness and, and even healing when you have those things around you. So now moving on, Diatra, to uh, your expectations, you decide to join the military and take us from there. You know, the military was actually a, a quick decision for me and one that I had not really given any consideration to until it became what I believed was my only option. Growing up, we had very, I want to say unspoken rules. We had a lot of spoken rules, but then we had a lot of unspoken rules. So we didn't talk about what we on behind closed doors. I used to say when Vegas came out with their with their campaign, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but they stole our household motto and I wanted the royalties um, because what happened behind our closed doors stayed behind closed doors. And when I was 17, I actually was, um, I was, I, I want to say asked to leave by my mother, but it was a little bit more uh, traumatic than that. <laughs> Um, involving police and my stuff all over the front yard and people driving past and wondering what's going on and me just kind of taken aback and not really understanding how trying to do the right thing led to this departure, especially the way it was. But I had moved in to live with some friends and realized about four months later that my, my eating disorder was becoming known to the mother of the household. And this was a dear friend of mine through high school her mother had been incredibly gracious, her entire family welcoming me. 
but um, her mother was a nurse and at one point questioned um, my eating habits or even the lack of or purging of what I had eaten. And so realizing that somebody was on to me, I chose to call my mother and ask her if I could come back, um, vowing to accept all responsibility of anything that had ever gone wrong in our home um, for as much as she would have considered me a part of and that I would be the ideal perfect welcome back into the home, which I was with the understanding that as soon as I graduated high school, which was going to be less than two months later, my bags would be packed and waiting for me on the front doorstep. So I didn't have really any other option without having to ask people that I knew for help, in which case I didn't know at that time um, how to do it. When I lived with my friend, it was because her mother insisted that I was going to have that as an option. It wasn't because I asked. It was somebody else stepping in and saying, this is this is what's going to happen. Sounds more like a, a very desperate situation uh, for somebody 17 years old to decide, where am I going to go? You're, you have no options, no other homes. You're, you, you've got the street to look forward to. You've got a lot of dangerous uh, um, a, a lot of danger out there to, to uh, try and live through. It was somebody. very desperate you and know. a lot of shame that I think I would have felt if I would have chosen any other route. If I would have gone and asked a friend or their family to live with them, there would have been shame brought upon me and upon my family. My grandparents would have been wondering why I had made that decision. Um, others in the community, uh, it was a very small community. I think the town that I grew up in was a population of about five. If I remember right, it was 506 people exactly with what was on the sign um, coming into our town. And so, you know, small towns have uh, a lot of rumor mill and a lot of assumption as to what's going on. And in, in that time, we're talking about the 70s and 80s and then just the very brink of the 90s. You didn't talk about what was going on next door and you certainly didn't meddle. In, in other people's business, the, the main thing was you don't hang your dirty laundry out for others to see. Sure. And I heard that. And so I needed to find something that that the people around me would consider honorable and the people who I very much wanted to um, respect what direction I was choosing were my grandparents more than anything. And I wanted my parents to know that I was doing something that I was proud of, that somehow I might find favor from them and that I would be able to take care of myself because I knew that ultimately I could only count on myself. And so somewhere the military was lurking and you were able to pick on, on that as, hey, this sounds like a pretty good option for me. Yeah, they had recruiters that came to the school, just happened um, to see them out in the common area um, with brochures. I picked up a couple of them, looked at them overnight, not saying anything to my family, went back to school and asked my school counselor, if I could um, talk with one of them because they weren't there anymore, <laughs> they had left. And so they, uh, they brought the recruiter in and told me what my options were. And I literally went home that night and told my family that I was gonna be signing up for the National Guard. And I had already scheduled when I was going to go for my physical. I had everything already worked out. And what was the reaction to your family when you brought that news home? I, I got the response that I was hoping that I would get. They were really happy that I had come up with a solution that was going to benefit me. I had thought it out ahead of time of how to present it. So I made sure that I hit on right up front that I was going to have the GI Bill, that I'd be making money that could be saved while I was away, that I'd have opportunities for growth and advancement, and that I'd be able to come back home and continue to work in the general civilian life while serving the country. And so as long as I laid out all of these good things, 
um, I was very fortunate that that's what they heard and they accepted. Sounds like all of the good things the recruiter told you. <laughs> I was really good at being able to, yeah. And at that time, I was I was 18 years old. So legally? So I had the choice to do whatever I wanted, wanted to, to do. Still a wise yeah. choice, though, at the time, sure. Absolutely. And probably one of the best choices I've ever made in my life was making sure that I had taken care of myself. It was a huge learning lesson on many fronts. Uh, just simply getting to basic training was if I back up, I had never been on an airplane before. So just to be able to go and do my physical, uh, take my physical and make sure that I was uh, able to join, getting on that plane, I had never done anything like that before. Um, I found out during my physical that I needed glasses, that I had been told earlier uh, by an optician that I didn't need glasses. And my parents were quite upset with me that I had wasted their time to even go and look into it. Um, but I learned that I did in fact need glasses. Um, got into basic training and I grew up in southeastern Idaho which um, for anyone who's been there there's a lot of space between each small city and I lived outside of a small town in a very teeny tiny community where like I said everybody knew everything about one another but the idea of being in a diverse environment of different races was was we had a number of African Americans, we had a number of um, Mexicans, um, Hispanics, and they kind of had their own way of doing things. And then we had the rest of us, and we were all the white people. And it, there just never was a lot of intermingling. There was a little bit, but not a lot. And so going into basic training, I had only ever seen one African American before, other than the Cosby show and what you see on the news. I had never interacted other than that one, which I think was just for one or two years in school, and then he left. I had never been around others. I remember one of the girls in basic, she um, she made a comment to me at one point about that I she knew that I had come from an uppity family, that I was stuck up and all about myself. I probably was prom queen and dated the head jock of the school and she made all of these assumptions about me that were not only untrue but were the exact opposite she described the person i had always wanted to be but because i didn't know how to interact in this completely new environment i just didn't interact i kept myself and i made sure that i kept my nose down despite the fact that i still drew attention um i didn't realize either that when you rise to the very top quickly in the military, it gets noticed. And um, my physical attributes put me at a very high level of recognition. And the fact that I didn't have control over my emotions and that I cried all the time. Oh my goodness, I wanna think, I, I wanna go back and tell that young lady, just just swallow a few of those tears, don't let them all out. Um, but you take that extreme of being uh, recognized for your agility and in your physical ability and match it with somebody who cries at the drop of a hat. And I stood out and, you know, that may have been a good thing. Um, a lot of times I found myself doing extra physical fitness training and being called out in front of everybody else. But these are all things that kind of build character. And I think that that's a big part of what the military does, especially in basic and AIT. It's break you down to build you up. And, um, and I think that it did that for me in spades. We are speaking with Deatra Kay, who is kind enough to come on and she's going to share some very good experiences uh, and educational experience with us uh, concerning 
depression, suicide, and uh, some of the difficulties that she had in life that I think would be very, very uh, informative for our audience. So, so Deatra, so now you are in basic training and take us through to the point of that you find is the most important in your military experience where you- Yeah, there's a few different highlights, Mike. Uh, the military was excellent because it showed me just how strong I was. And by the time that I was done with AIT in which I chose to go into truck driving, um, my my dad, for all intents and purposes, my stepfather, he was a truck driver and uh, he would take my brother out on routes or he'd take me out on routes. And I think because I wanted him to love me like his daughter, not just, and he did and he provided for us, but I wanted him to be proud of me and I wanted to do something that showed that I had value to him. And so that was a way of honoring him. And I could have chosen a number of other uh, MOS has, but that's the one I chose. I'm so thankful I did. It was a great experience. Um, by the time that I got out of AIT, I actually graduated top 10 of my class um, out of, I think there were 43 of us, and I graduated, I think, number three. There was one other female, and I think I graduated third. And so, you know, I actually didn't get to go up on stage and get my recognition, though. I got caught drinking in the latrine. <laughs> <laughs> so they said that I couldn't be recognized, but I, I was recognized when I got back to my home unit, and and I'm, I'm proud of that. I am proud that this little nobody who truly growing up, I thought that I was going to be a nobody. I was told that I was nobody. I was teased incessantly, what we call bullying now. Yeah, I don't think that we ever had an actual term for it then, and there certainly was no step in and protect um, at the same time, it really helped me grow a level of strength within myself that I was able to combat a lot of challenges that I think that others going through those same experiences, both as a child and as a young adult, likely would not have made it through um, because I had that continuously throughout my life. And I did understand that I couldn't really count on, you know, mommy or daddy or teachers or bus drivers or whoever to sweep in and fix it. I had to figure out how to how to connect with that inner strength that uh, often I couldn't see within myself, but somehow I was tapping into it to get through. And I remember when I was a freshman having my first initial thoughts of suicide and feeling so overwhelmed, but so hopeless and not really understanding what these thoughts were and not fully processing what such an action would mean on a grand scale. When you're 14, you're thinking about the right now in this moment. You're not thinking about the family that does love you. You're not thinking about the life that's still ahead of you that you will never experience. And I didn't do anything with that thought or those that continued until I was 16. And what I remember is hitting a point of such desperation that I simply wanted somebody to know that I was hurting Now, the thought of suicide and what it would take in order to make that attempt was really benign at that time. It was not life-threatening. In fact, I remember my mother finding me and telling me that if I wanted to die by suicide, here's how you really do it, and telling me what I needed to do to get it right. (laughs) Um, I think part of it was that she wanted to scare me, and... And I don't know where else a mother comes up with the idea of giving her child the exact measures on how to end her life. <laughs> Let, let's go with the part that you hope she was trying to scare you. Yes. Yeah. 
And, you know, if that was the purpose, and I think that it was, um, it did a couple of things for me. Number one, I had this sense of guilt and shame that I didn't know what I was doing, that she had caught me. At the same time, I was so glad that she took a moment to notice me and to, for a moment, ask me to question what I was doing, because that meant that she was questioning why I was doing it. Now, that doesn't mean that there was um, this outpouring of love and empathy, but the little bit of response that I got was helpful enough for me to realize I didn't want to do that. In line with that, there was a young lady at my high school who had attempted to end her life and who survived, but I was so keenly aware of what people were saying in those halls of the high school about her and about her mental condition that I quickly knew this is not something that I can ever talk to anybody about. And so while those thoughts continued, uh, they still continue to this day. I, I think they call it reoccurring um, suicide ideation or chronic suicide ideation. I The thoughts are, I've never gotten to a point where I know that I never will have those thoughts again. My mind process of suicide is that it is always an option and it always was. Um, I had those thoughts while I was in basic training. I had those thoughts during my young career time in the National Guard. Um, it wasn't until I was 27 that I took my next significant um, attempt, and that one nearly took me out. So um, just to kind of give you an idea of the span of time that those thoughts reoccurred, in trying to process what's going on inside of your mind and make logical decisions is you know, it, it's virtually impossible. You're working with a mind that is in a state of dis-ease. It's diseased in the way that it's processing information. And I couldn't ever find that balance between my thoughts of the topic of suicide being selfish and weak and my thoughts of suicide as the desperate measure to end the psychological pain that was never ending. Because to do to take any kind of an action meant that I was selfish and weak. And I had no problem stating that outwardly to people who would bring up the topic if they heard that somebody had died uh, by suicide or had an attempt. You know, quite often I'd be quiet about it because I was afraid somebody would see into who I was. But, but there were more than enough times that I made statements that were very disparaging towards somebody that was suicidal, more so as my own protection. You know, denial for me literally became my key to survival. If I deny and project out a negative thought on the topic of suicide, then I don't have to accept this part of my mind that depending upon where my, um, my mental state is at and the events that are going around me and the coping skills that I'm either using or using well or not using well or that are healthy for me or not healthy for me kept coming back. But during this time, nobody ever suggested that you get professional help. You never thought about getting professional help. You were just dealing with this as, uh, as these thoughts that were coming to you, but not with any outside help or any kind of guidance. Well, in truth, I started therapy when I was six years old. My mother was going through a divorce with my brother's dad, the one that we had moved to Idaho with, and who I thought was my father. In fact, my school records all the way until almost the sixth grade, my school records, my doctor records, my dentist records, everything. My last name is my brother's last name and was never my legal name. And I did not know that. 
I found out when I was six that he wasn't my father, which still didn't make any sense to me. At six years old, you don't understand those things. It wasn't until I was in fifth grade that I actually asked my school to change my records. And when they looked at me like I had a third eye, why would I be asking to do this? I actually had to go home and ask for, for the first time, my birth certificate and what my last night, what my last name was. I was in and out of therapy throughout my entire childhood and really throughout my adulthood. Um, the challenge was that if the therapist said something that my mother did not like, which often would end up being the case, I would have therapy with the counselor. I would say something that had happened or that I had seen or how I felt about something. And then, of course, they would bring my mother in and they would try to do more of a family counseling session with her involved. And as soon as they would question her methods of parenting, they would um, they would put that that discomfort into her that would cause her to stop having us go. And I learned from that that if you want to be able to get to get out of therapy, you tell them what they want to hear, and then you just stop going. And that became my routine. That became a routine all the way up until after my suicide attempt. Although I will say that when it came to the um, prescription medications that I had been on and off and on and off. I, I had a bad case of playing Dr. D, which was me, go and get a doctor who would give me a prescription when my life was getting completely out of control. And I would start to feel more in my element, more balanced. And of course, then my brain would begin to tell me that I was fine, that I didn't need these, these pills, that pills are for people who are sick and I'm not. And I would stop taking them. And so it was years even later than when I stuck to the regimen of having a therapist consistently that I met a psychologist who explained to me what was going on in my brain and why it was so important that I be on a medication um, and not go off from it. So he actually put me on a medication that would give me terrible side effects if I stopped taking it. And you know, just another point in my life when I had to consciously make the decision and the commitment to do something different than what I had been doing before so that I could, you know, with hope, get a better outcome than what I was experiencing on a day-to-day basis. But it actually wasn't until, and I'm kind of, I'm jumping way ahead, it wasn't until last year that I received an accurate diagnosis of what was going on inside of my mind. I had been treated for years for PTSD, for depression, and for anxiety. And I had had a couple of therapists that, of course, I stopped seeing because they said something I didn't like, suggest that I was bipolar. And I had family members and friends and even even employees of mine through the years that had said, made comments alluding to the idea that I was bipolar and in my mind, mental illness made you weak. And I created a chronological list of various mental illness diagnoses and which ones were the worst. And bipolar was the second to the top. So I couldn't be that sick. At least I decided. And so this last year, I finally, and I'll give myself the credit. It took a lot of courage to allow somebody to do the testing necessary to actually do a clinical diagnosis, and it came back bipolar type 1. And so um, it explains a lot. It explains a lot. And I think that a big part of the challenges that I faced and that um, those in and outside of the military face is that we don't understand how our brains work. We don't understand 
the phases of aging within our brain. We don't understand the, the balance that our brain is constantly trying to find between logic and emotion. We're told what, we're, what we should believe, and 99% of that is based on a stigma that isn't accurate. And so we navigate through life the best that we can trying to avoid those negative titles, that stigma that says you're weak or that you're selfish or that, you, um, that you're lazy or you name it. Mm. Probably all said it, yeah, either to ourselves right. or to others or both. I want to be very, very careful here, Diatra, not to comment too too much here because you're talking about something that's very, very clinical, and that's a diagnosis for the different effects you were having, but also medication. I'm not qualified, so I don't want it to sound like we're not. I'm not interested in the story. I just have to be very, very careful that I'm not commenting on something I'm not qualified to comment on. But what you're doing, what you're explaining, is very, very important. Yeah, and I think that um, I think that there's also one part of our our social environment, and this is probably global, I don't think it's just here in America or in Wisconsin or, or even in our hometown, but I think that we have placed so much responsibility and trust in the medical community that we've lost sight of what real lived experience can do to help us um, connect with one another, which is so vital to the entire concept of wellness. And to feel comfortable sharing our stories, being authentic um, in who we are. I got out of the military, or out of basic and AIT, rather. I got out of my, my active training for that, and I came home, and I remember being really proud of myself and loving, loving my unit. Oh, my goodness. I don't know if they're as great as they were at the time, but the Southeastern Idaho uh, National Guard was, in my estimation, it was the example of what we would want to see from our um, from any unit here in our country that's representing our national defense um, here in in America, and I found a place where I belonged. I found a place that I put that uniform on, and number one, anywhere that I went, this was this was just barely after Desert Storm, just barely. We were just coming out of it, and you know, unlike prior wars, there was a sense of honor in wearing that uniform. There was a sense of team and unity reporting for my regular duty. In fact, I would volunteer time to time to go and just help clean up the supply room when it wasn't even drill weekend, just because it gave me a sense of belongingness. And I needed that so much. I needed it like I needed air. And and so there was great pride in it, and I was excited to be a part of that and to be recognized because I always pushed myself to be better than whatever the expectation was, knowing that when you do that, at least in the military for the most part, you would be noticed in a good way. And so that kind of laid, for me, a foundation of how to navigate chain of command, how to hold yourself in in not just necessarily high esteem, but in some level of esteem that that made your character feel stronger. I, <laughs> I remember moving to Wisconsin and being so excited to go into that next phase of my military experience and coming from a place where we would do convoy up into the mountains and we would drive our big trucks around these mountains and see what they could do and, and the camaraderie and 
and then get serious about what are we learning while we're out here? Why are we here? What is the purpose of us being here? And let's treat this as though we are actually here for a purpose because we've been issued some form of a report for duty and we've got a task to do. I was so excited about those things that when I came to Wisconsin, I couldn't wait for that next introduction. I was expecting my first son with my with my first husband, and we had both had an excellent experience in the National Guard. He got here um, with me, and he was assigned to an infantry unit, and he loved it. And I was told right away that if I wanted to be able to drive a truck, I was going to have to drive almost an hour and a half to a different unit because women could not serve alongside an infantry unit in my area. And this is coming from Idaho, which I thought, gosh, Wisconsin's going to have all of these new opportunities and probably even more forward-minded. And I felt like I literally was stuck in this little tiny box that I just didn't know how to get comfortable in. So I was encouraged to take a desk job and to learn a new MOS and to shuffle papers and help with insurance, renewing all of our beneficiary paperwork at the end of the year. And and I, the first time that I reported for duty, I'm walking up the unit that I belong to. There were two sets of stairs. You'd walk up the stairs on the outside of the building, and then you'd go inside a set of doors and walk up another set of stairs that were on the inside. And I remember walking up these second set of stairs, and my balance was off because I was pregnant. And I think I was just maybe excited or nervous or whatever, but I, mis- I misstepped, and I fell straight forward. And as much as I tried to catch myself, I still landed on my stomach. And I was young, I was 20 years old, almost 21. And all I can think is I've hurt my baby. I'm wearing civilian clothes because I haven't been issued my maternity BDUs yet. And I look up and at the top of the stairs is a sergeant walking past who shakes his head and kind of half laughs and says, really? And kept walking. I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh my gosh, if this is the guy I'm stuck in a foxhole with, at wartime, I'm, I'm never going to make it. That was my very first experience walking into the unit I was assigned to. I hadn't even made it all the way up the stairs to go and report for duty. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I'm in civilian clothes. So to him, I'm just a civilian. I sure hope that he treats those who are in uniform better. Now, I couldn't tell you today who he was. I remember feeling like a fish out of water. The unit was, I want to say, probably 70% African-American. Outside of my time in basic and AIT, I, I went back to the state of Idaho where there were not very, there just wasn't that much diversity. Um, in the town that I lived in in Wisconsin, not a lot of diversity. There is a lot more now, um, and I'm thankful for that. But I go into a unit where that was my welcome to the front door, and I'm in the inner city of Milwaukee, which already feels uncomfortable to me because I grew up in a town of 500, and now I'm in this metropolitan city that I don't know where I'm going. Of course, this is before phones and, you know, GPS and all those good things to make things easier. But I was so lost, and I remember feeling like I was right back where I was before I ever signed up for the Army. I didn't belong anymore. I was in a unit that did not value me did not really care if I was there or I wasn't. A lot of the conversation with the younger soldiers, my peers, was about being tired from being out the night before or upset because they had to get up early to come to drill or 
just things that didn't have anything to do with what to me was really, really, really important. And that was that kinship, the uniform, the service, you know, um, God, country, family, that whole, it just didn't, I didn't know where I belonged. And on top of that, I moved to a state where I knew nobody other than a couple of family members of my husband's family. I knew nobody. I was so lost and trying to figure out how to fit, knowing that I didn't, but not even having the role models around me that I had once had and the safety and security of my daytime job that I had worked my way up, my National Guard position that I had worked my way up, I, all of it was gone. Not to mention the fact that now I'm going to be a mother and I have no idea what I'm doing other than I don't want to be the mother that I came from. But I've got nobody really to tell me how to do that different either. It was probably one of the scariest times of my life. And by the time that our son was 11 months old, my husband left me with this baby now to have to navigate all of this. You know, I look back and I, and there's a lot of things that you always wish that you maybe had done different. I, um, I, I took, I took an early leave on a medical. I didn't stay in the national guard. I got out, I think maybe six months early. And when I did, I remember feeling a sense of shame because I knew what had brought me into the service and I knew what I had accomplished and what path I was on prior to moving to Wisconsin and feeling like I took the easy way out. And, and I, I literally went for decades, even, you know, downplaying that I had ever even done what I had. I remember talking to you, Mike, and sharing with you my background. You didn't even realize I was in the military because I don't talk about it. Because there's always been this part of me that says, I didn't do active time. I got out that three or six months or whatever it was early. I, I didn't make the choice to drive the hour and a half one way to go to a unit. I didn't put forth the effort and the longevity to deserve recognition for my service. And I seem to be quite often the only one that feels that way. <laughs> that way. It's interesting how we have our own self-perception versus what others see. I think it's also common that a lot of uh, people enlist in the military to find something for them to do, to have some purpose, to have that uniform, to belong somewhere. There are many different elements why people enlist in the military. But I think for a lot of them, it's uh, for a lot of us, it's to belong to something. It's to, to a higher purpose, whatever that might be. So, so now you've come to this conclusion and you, you've, uh, moving forward, come out of the military now take us through how you have come to adjust to this uh, self that you're punishing for the choices that you made. Yeah, like I said, for a long time, I didn't. Um, and I still, to this day, I struggle with the idea that if I'm in an auditorium of people and everybody who has served in any branch of the military, please stand up so we can honor you. I'm, I, I seldomly will. And, and honestly, the only time that I really do is when my husband or somebody around me just won't stop nagging at me and makes me. And then, you know, I've had individuals who have said, you not standing indicates that you're ashamed of your position within the military that you were there. And in my mind, I'm honoring those who, again, what does your brain tell you? My brain says they have earned it. I have not. And so it's such a matter of perspective. I think I'm honoring them and other people around me think that I am uh, ashamed of my service time. So trying to find that balance, again, the logic versus the emotion. And it's been, um, 
I think I'm coming into my own enough. Well, I better. I'm I'm a few decades into this thing that we call life. Um, I'm, I think I'm coming into loving all parts of me and celebrating those things that that I've worked really hard for and being thankful for the things that I didn't have to work as hard for and recognizing that the term failure too often gets a bad rap. I didn't fail by leaving early. I didn't um, fail by not serving in active wartime. I learned a lot about myself as a result of those two things that for a long time I held as, as being less than. Let me ask you this, Dietra. Would it would it make sense if I were to ask you the difference between accepting yourself based on what you think of yourself and accepting yourself uh, based on what you think other people think of yourself? That whole acceptance thing, you needed this or it, through your own explanation, when you were young, living at home, you were leaving, you needed to find a place to belong, all based on what other people, what the outside world thought of you. What's the value well, of, of finding- yeah. Some of it at that yeah. time was necessity. What I found was a sense of belongingness that I had, that I had hoped maybe I would get it. And then I realized it was so there was such a brotherhood in that uniform. And I I don't think I've ever experienced that even since. Now that I think about it, I think that there are really strong bonds that I've had with, you know, depending upon where I've been, my staff or my peers. I don't think I've ever experienced the kind of kinship that I did in those first few years of my National Guard service. I think when I left, um, and because it was a sense of not belonging, I think that I realized how much I had needed that. And, you know, for for better or worse, I found other ways to be able to build similar type of, similar relationships. But yeah, I don't think, I, I think that it is a unique proposition and I can't speak to what it's like to come home after being on the front line overseas. I can't speak to that. I suspect it's to some degree an even higher sense of this camaraderie and brotherhood and I've got your back and you've got mine and we can we can talk about it or we can choose not to talk about it and we get each other. I, in fact, I have to go back to um, my brother and my sister and because we all lived under the same roof throughout our entire childhood, our stepbrother and stepsister would come and go, and, and not with any regular frequency. But my brother Michael, my sister Tiffany, and myself, there are, there are times now that we will experience something that takes us back to those early years of our life. We can say so little to each other, and it gets to the core of who we are. And in that moment, even in silence, there's a connection. And I think sometimes the wars that are fought are as challenging and harmful and trauma-inducing within the four walls of our homes right here in America is what we see in another country. And I think that there are certain pockets of our country here in America that that's probably even more so true. And so I think I can appreciate what what my fellow veterans who have served have experienced the war that I happened to serve full-time duty for <laughs> 17 years was uh, it just happened to be in a smaller battleground. So if you could share with our listeners, Dietra, what it is that now you had all of these experiences made all of these or, or had all of this enlightenment and, and all of these um 
ideas and now you have to put it all together for yourself that internal drive that internal respect that responsibility for yourself how did you find this what have you found and if there's someone in the audience who is experiencing something similar to yours what would you recommend or suggest as resources for them that would be helpful that have helped you that's such a great question it really is because I think that again, there's so much that we can learn from others who have walked in a, walked a similar path. And one of the things that I have learned, and I have um, come to almost rely on and welcome, is the voice of others who have been where I've been. And I've now been able to take those experiences and the stories that have been shared with me, and um, and give something back to the next generation that might be walking the path and, and share with them, look, you will be okay. You know, the fact that you're right here right now, sharing your truth, your story, that vulnerability, that courage, that strength is proof that you're going to be okay because you've already survived a hundred percent of the challenges that you've been thrown. And if you can be that strong, then, then I think that if we walk this journey together, you're going to just continue to become stronger and the pain that you're experiencing is going to begin to heal. And so, you know, that's been a big part of it is, is learning how to give back to somebody and recognizing that the beautiful gift is I can see somebody. And as they're sharing their story, I remember me then. And the only difference between who they are and where they are and who I am and where I am is that I've been walking the journey toward healing longer. That's it. It's the only difference. Deatra, if we were to take just the one topic, and that is of suicide, somebody having those particular thoughts or experiences as you had, what steps would you recommend to them or suggest to them to take when they're having those thoughts, even though you may have thought them to be benign or not uh, actualities? what's out there for a person to find some comfort in not saying I'm all alone in these thoughts with something I don't really understand about myself. Where could I speak to somebody about this? What would you recommend to them? One of the very first things that I would recommend, and again, this is a matter of me learning um, what I didn't know then and, and hopefully helping somebody else come across tools and, and resources and, and coping skills and such. Um, that can make the journey easier because it doesn't have to be as hard as it is, is I have a website. It's, it's for my speaking platform, but I actually have a document that's on there that is called a suicide safety and survival plan. And it can be downloaded and used, but there are suicide safety and survival plans on the internet. You don't have to use mine. My website's deatrak.com. If you're looking for it, D E E A T R A the letter K.com. But even without mine, there are these suicide safety and survival plans that you can download from any number of sites. And I really encourage that anybody who has even began to have the faintest thought that the psychological pain they're experiencing is more than what they can handle and could be alleviated through an act of suicide, that they sit down and that they fill it out. Essentially, what, it, what, what this tool is, is it's going to help you identify in a state of as much calm as you can be, and if you'd like to have somebody else help you with it, sit with a trusted friend or a therapist or um, your 
faith leader or whoever, but you're going to identify what is a safe environment for me. When your brain is thinking more logically than with the emotion of that psychological pain, identify what does that environment look like? Making sure that you don't have access to lethal means, whatever those might be, whether it's medications or a firearm or whatever, that you don't have access and write that, write it out. Who can you talk to? Make include the list of who are the people that you know you can talk to. And it could be that the only number that you have is the crisis line that is open 24 seven and that you can call and somebody will listen to you. Talk, just talking to somebody is scientifically proven to deescalate psychological pain. Just talking, nothing else, just talking and sharing how you're feeling. You don't even have to understand why you feel it as long as you recognize that you are feeling a certain way and there's nothing wrong in the way that you're feeling, but there are things that you can do that can actually create a more difficult time for yourself and or for others based on how you respond to those feelings. Um, that suicide and uh, safety and survival plan, it, you can also put um, what to do if you're by yourself. What type of activities can you engage in? Reading a book, watching videos, and then pay attention to what kind of books and videos you're, you're watching and reading. Taking a walk, physical activity, contact with nature, being outside in the sunlight, even on a blistery cold day. These are all natural ways of combating depression. It doesn't even cost anything. Just go outside and go for a walk. Um, and, and you're going to have the health benefits of that. It also, that, that document, you can put things that you can do when you're with others that you can share with them, but you've already thought through what helps talking. Maybe it is watching a movie, but having somebody else there to do it with, right? There's a, there's a plethora of things that we can do that are considered coping skills. Part of the challenge is identifying which ones are healthy and which ones are not healthy. So make sure that you're looking for things that you can do that have worked for you in the past or that you want to try because you know that they are healthy ways of being able to manage unexpected circumstances. Another thing on there, and I think it's one of the best things that you should definitely include, is what can somebody else say or do to help you? Write it down. Often we have people who want to help us, but they don't know how. And each person, the way that they heal is different from another person. So this tool basically becomes a guidance map, not only to you when your mind isn't thinking as logically that you can say, okay, I remember writing that and yeah, that might help, but also to somebody else who might need a little bit of direction on how to help you. And that map can be invaluable. Don't be afraid to ask for help. And if you're not okay with the mental health professional that you're working with, or you've had a, a bad experience in the past, don't discount that talk therapy works. It does work. It's a matter of whether or not when you go in for that first or second appointment, you ask questions of the therapist to understand what's your therapy session traditionally going to look like? Um, how will I know if I'm doing better? Are you going to give me assignments to do or are we just going to talk? What's your philosophy on healing? Do you think that I can get to a point where I won't have to constantly be coming in to talk to you? Do you think I'll need maintenance every once in a while to come in, even though I'm feeling good most of the time? Ask questions. Interview the mental health professional in your first or second visit to see them. And if it's not a good match, if it doesn't fit, if it doesn't feel 
like they're going to resonate well with you, then go interview another one. You're hiring them. You pay them for a service. No different than if you were going to put a new roof on your house, you would, you'd get quotes and you'd find out how much it was going to cost. You already find that out on whether or not you can afford it. And then when you get there, you ask them the questions to determine whether or not they can perform the job that they're being paid for. And you do it respectfully, but you do it with an open mind and you just wait to see which one of these do I feel like I'm connecting to? Because there is somebody out there that will meet the major needs and expectations that you have. And that's the person that when you're willing to open up to them, that's the person that's going to be able to guide you in your journey toward healing. And I just, I don't know how to do it any other way. I still have, I call my mental health professional. I call her my life, my life coach, because instead of her teaching me, coaching me on how to have a really good backswing or how to sing really well, she's my life coach. She coaches me through life and how to live it well. And so, you know, those are just some of the basics. Don't be afraid to try medications and stay consistent. Do not play doctor on yourself. Again, if you don't feel comfortable with the, with the psychiatrist, then interview somebody else and see what you can do to come up with the right combination. And it takes time to, to test them all out. Mental health isn't, it's not a cookie cutter. The, the path toward recovery and fulfillment is as unique as you are as a person. And so you get to try and, and be curious about yourself and, and the methods and the options that you have and, and celebrate the fact that you're in control of your wellness. You get to control it. Feel empowered in that journey. If something isn't working, embrace that empowerment and look for something different. But keep an open mind and try it long enough that you know that it's not the right thing before you try something different and stay consistent. Love yourself enough to give yourself that gift. Wow, powerful. Very powerful. Uh, Deatra, uh, share with us one more time your, your website where people could find this particular document because I think once they've seen it, they can find other copies of it that are similar. But share again your website with us. The website is deatrak.com. D is in David. E-E-A-T-R-A, the letter K is in kite.com. You know, now that we're thinking about this, I have another tool, which is questions to ask a mental health provider. And I'll try to, I'll try to remember in the next few days to upload that to the website. If, if you go on the website and it's not there, send, just contact me through the contact form and I'll make sure that you get a copy of it. But um, it's it's kind of the best questions to ask when you're interviewing a mental health pro- professional to see if you want to hire them to be your life coach. That is excellent advice to take control of your therapy, take control of the conversations you have and who you have them with is, is wonderful advice. And as you say, it's empowering. Yeah, this is your life. Yeah. Live it and live it well. And when your brain starts telling you something that uh, that others might disagree with, don't believe that everything your brain tells you is the absolute truth. You've got to look at where it's coming from and what uh, what's seated behind those thoughts. Deatra Kay, thank you very much. Thank you for sharing your life experience, but thank you more importantly, or just as importantly, for turning it around so that with trust and, and love in your heart, you can uh, want to make the human spirit better for other people. This is uh, extremely valuable information. So thank you for joining us today. And uh, again, your website, Dietra, 
BeatriceK.com. Thank you again for another wonderful educational session with Stigma Free Vet Zone, the podcast. Boy, you bring back so many things that so many of us have experienced with uh, with the depression and suicide. the one that I like the most, though I have to say this because it keeps coming into my mind, is, is the empowerment. Take control of your life and don't wait for somebody else to do it. Take take that step yourself and look for the help. Yeah, Mike, can I add one thought? Sure, you can. When it comes to recovery, we are by design as human beings, we are designed to be in connection. Without connection, we wouldn't even be having this conversation right now because we would have failed to have been able to procreate through the history in order for us to even exist, right? <laughs> So connection is so vital. Do not ever, please, those who are listening, do not try to fight the battle of suicide ideation on your own. It would be like going into a major battle zone by yourself out on the combat field. With no weapons. You cannot fight that fight. Connection is the key to prevention. So connect with others. And, and allow them to walk that journey. It's the greatest gift you'll give to yourself and the greatest gift that they'll be able to give to you. Thank you, Deitra. Thank you. This has been another educational session on Stigma-Free Vet Zone, and we are brought to you by the Charles E. Kubley Foundation. And for more resources, please visit our website at Orban Foundation for Veterans or in the short form, OF4Vets.org. And folks are always available to do exactly what Dietra is uh, sharing with you, and that's to call the Veterans Crisis Line at 1-800-273-8255 and press number one. And don't hesitate to call them. They are there. Many of them have uh, very similar experiences as uh, others who have struggled with this particular issue. So give them a call. Our sound engineers today are Ben Slane and Mark Heleniak. And for co-host Bob Bach, I am Mike Orban. And thank you for spending time with us.